One of the hardest parts about the Christian life, I would submit to you, is the reality of our own ongoing sinfulness. Uh, facing down our own miserable failures time and time again. Uh, to the spirit-born man or woman, this causes all kinds of turmoil. Questions arise when we blow it again. Why, if the Spirit of God is in me, truly, why do I do these things? Why do I think these thoughts? Why do I act in this way? Why do I forget what I once saw very clearly? Am I or am I not made new? And doubts creep in. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I'm not a Christian after all, since a Christian, it seems to me, wouldn't do this. And we begin to think we're perhaps the only one to feel this way, and the assurance, the confidence that we belong to Christ gets robbed from us, and we can flounder. Uh, there's a tendency to think that uh, sanctification, that growing in godliness for a, a, a Christian is just this straight, uh, straight shot upward, this nice gentle slope in which we progress with ease into godliness and holiness. We think, it, or, or we think it's that way, or perhaps we think it should be that way, at least for us, that there should not be any setbacks, certainly no major setbacks along the way. And then it happens. A significant setback in which the curtain gets pulled back and some dark corner of our heart becomes exposed. And sometimes we discover that that sin that's exposed has really been there all along. It's been there as, as long as we've been alive and we've never even seen it before. And that can be very unsettling, very disconcerting. I've just been, this has been hiding there for so long. Uh, sometimes, maybe we've, we've, we've always known about it to some extent, but it's just strong. We see it more clearly now. And so we just, we feel helpless about it. We've, we've failed again, and we just lie under the weight of this crushing sin. And then as we continue on in the faith, as we've been a Christian for many years, and as the years pass by, uh, the pain of this indwelling sin, in many ways, can become more acute, can become more painful. Again, we imagine, in ten years from now, how godly we will be, and how great we will be. And how purged of so much sin we will be. And then those ten years pass and we find ourselves still wrestling with sin. In fact, not only that, but we see sin even more clearly now. And we see that we're even more sinful than we knew ten years ago. And ten years ago we were worse than we knew ten years ago. And now we are also still very sinful now. And we see it all much more clearly in God's much more holy than, holy than we ever realized he was. And it can seem as though we're worse off, and tiredness can set in, and we can wonder where our youthful zeal disappeared to. Meanwhile, life takes its toll in all other ways that you know about. Difficulties come in all kinds of forms. You suffer loss, loved ones, financial troubles, heartache, family troubles, whatever it might be, uh, life sets in, and all this comes together, and we can become uh, filled with despair. Can, there can be very dark days for believers. 
I think some of us are more prone to feel this way than others. There's something about our disposition. We are maybe more prone to, to feel that than others. Uh, but I do think, to some extent at least, this is the common experience of believers. There can be these very difficult and dark, challenging days. And the truth that's before us today is what we need to hear. It's what we need to soak up. It's what we need to have penetrate our souls for those moments uh, so that we might displace the lies and displace the despair. We need to see that our Savior, the Lord Jesus, not only died to save, but He now continues to intercede for those He saves. He, He ever lives now to make intercession for His own. Right now, He does this. He stands at the Father's right hand, as Hebrews tells us, working to keep us, working to deliver us, to hold us fast to the end. This is a present and ongoing ministry of our Redeemer. And it is a tremendous source of comfort when we come to understand this and grasp this. Consider a couple texts for a moment. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You know this charge. You are useless. Look at you. You're nothing. You've blown it again. What kind of a Christian are you? You're a terrible example. No one will ever believe if they look at you. If they knew your thoughts, they'd be disgusted with you. Everybody would, would run and flee. You're nothing. God can't save you. But Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, and then this, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Presently, that's a present tense. He is interceding for us now, presently. And then Hebrews 7.25 says this, speaking of Christ, it says he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. How is this? Why is this? Since, because, he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus presently stands to intercede for his own, and this is a part of how it is that he saves his own, how he keeps his own. As Hebrews says, how he saves to the uttermost, to completion. And there are places in the Gospels where we get a sense of what this intercession looks like, what it entails. Where we see foreshadows of Christ's heavenly intercession in the heavenly sanctuary while he was yet on earth in the incarnation. So we read John 17 earlier, that's perhaps one of the more well-known passages where he prays specifically for his disciples, and then not only for them, but for all who will believe on account of their witness. And he explicitly says he's not praying for the world, but for his sheep, for his people, often referred to as his high priestly prayer. We see it there, but also we find it in Luke 22, verses 31 to 34. And I invite you to turn there with me as we continue through Luke. Luke 22, verse 31. We're going to read through to 34 cover those verses together in our time that remains. I invite you to read this. Our Lord says, 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. We see in these verses the Lord Jesus telling Peter of his coming sin, his coming failure, his denial. But we also see the Lord assuring Peter that he has prayed for him. Assuring Peter that he has interceded on Peter's behalf. And so as we, as we go through these verses, our, our outline is, is quite simple. First, we're going to look at the necessity of Christ's intercession. Why it is that this intercession is necessary. And then we're going to look at the effectiveness of Christ's intercession. What it is that his intercession accomplishes. So first, the necessity of Christ's intercession. As I've said, it's, it's crucially important uh, to understand, to know that Christ intercedes for his own. And there's three reasons here that we can see, uh, in these verses at least. I'm sure there's many more uh, reasons we could talk about. But in these verses we see three at least reasons why this intercession is necessary. And the first is because of our enemy's powerful designs. This is what makes his intercession for us necessary. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but as the Apostle Paul says, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual battle that rages, and our world scoffs, of course, at this type of uh, at this belief, at this truth, but the scriptures are, could not be more clear about this reality. If it's true about anything, it's true about this, because it's very clear on this point. And this spiritual battle is vividly on display here. It might appear, if we just read about Peter's denial, that there's just natural causes and effects going on when Peter goes through the trial, he goes through and denies Christ. It might seem it's just natural causes and effects, but... Again here, Jesus pulls back the curtain and shows us there's much more going on. That this is an element of a, of a much larger cosmic battle that is going on. And Jesus says here, in verse 31, he begins saying, Simon, Simon, perhaps ominously uh, addressing Peter with his pre-Christian name. Remember, it was Jesus who gave him the name Peter. His name is Simon. This is perhaps... Uh, ominous of what is to come, sign of what is to come. He says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That ought to send chills down your spine. Uh, this is somewhat reminiscent of uh, the first couple chapters of Job, uh, although it's not exactly the same. Uh, in Job, we see God actually presenting Job before Satan. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's a little different there. Here, Satan is the one who desires to tempt the disciples. It says demanded. Uh, he demanded to have you, it says. Uh, but we, we know that Satan does not have an authority over God by which he can be, you know, demand things of God as though God then must, well, he says, I'm, you know, give in to it. Uh, that's not how this works. It could easily be rendered. He asked. Uh, but it does seem to have this force of, 
revealing the desire Satan has. He really wants this to happen. He wants this opportunity to tempt these disciples. When it says there, he demanded to have you, uh, that word you is in the plural there, which means that Satan desires to sift all of the disciples. So it's like he, he, he demanded to have you all, y'all. That's, that's what it's after. So he's, he's, he's after all of them. He wants to sift all of the Lord's disciples. And the purpose of this, Jesus says, is to sift them like wheat. This imagery is of shaking wheat to separate the chaff from the edible grain. Uh, in this case, it pictures a, a violent shaking, uh, not to purify the disciples, rather, but to hopefully expose them as chaff, that they're not real, that their faith is not legitimate, they're nothing. Now, Satan is not omniscient. He does not know everything. He does not know the future. He doesn't know who are God's elect. Uh, we know from earlier uh, in the chapter, he has had success with Judas, and here he wants the rest. He wants to destroy any false professors among them. And if that won't happen, he wants to afflict them. He wants to cause distress. He wants to discourage them, cause misery to these believers. If they cannot altogether be destroyed, then at least he would like to afflict them with trials and temptations, cause them to have setbacks, keep them from being productive, just in general make them miserable. It is as Peter later said, and consider how Peter knew this from very personal experience, that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's 1 Peter 5.8. There is a battle raging in this life with an enemy who is more powerful than us. Uh, in his commentary on this, John Calvin notes that this truth is helpful for us because we have a tendency to downplay our temptations when in fact they are fiery darts of a vigorous and powerful enemy. And this helps us snap out of complacency when we're faced with temptation to remember there is a war raging. Now, we don't look out and just always, uh, we, we can't see this realm in which this all takes place. But nevertheless, it is true. And further, the truth of this ongoing battle with a powerful enemy that we don't see with our physical eyes is one of the reasons why Christ's intercession for us is necessary, why it's important. Which of us can stand against our ancient foe? Uh, even as we sang earlier, there's one man that we need to have on our side if we are to stand against him. Our enemy is simply too much. Too much for you, too much for me to go it alone. And so this is a cause, this is, this is why it is, one of the reasons why Christ's ongoing intercession is necessary. We face this enemy, our enemy is powerful. There's a second reason here, second thing that makes Christ's intercession necessary, and that is our weak flesh, our weak flesh. So if you jump down to verse 33, Peter is hearing what the Lord has to say, but he does not think that Satan will have success over him in this temptation. He will not crumble like chaff. He's confident of this. And so with all sincerity, I submit to you, Peter says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Now, I would suggest he is very sincere in this, that he means this, that he has affection for the Lord Jesus 
He knows that he is the Messiah. He knows this is right. And in this moment, this is what he desires. He wants this to be the case. I will go with you to prison, to death. He's sincere in what he says here. Come what may, I'm with you. He means it. But he underestimates his flesh. And it is not the presence of sort of a machismo, manly strength that's needed here. It is a deep spiritual courage. And it is help from the Lord that he needs. And we know, as we will continue and get into Gethsemane, Jesus will tell them this hour of temptation is coming and they should be praying that they would be able to withstand this. And what are they doing instead? Sleeping. Right? Sleeping. There's a, there's a fleshly confidence here, but it's the spiritual courage and strength they need and that they do not, that Peter does not possess. So he will attempt to go down fighting literally with the sword. We'll get to that when Jesus is arrested. But ultimately, Peter's courage would fail when he's accused by a girl of being with Christ. And as one commentator notes, Peter is deeply punished for this overconfidence he has. Uh, he, he will see how mistaken he was when he fails miserably. He will soon be in this abysmal pit of failure and shame in just a matter of a few hours from this conversation, from this confidence, I will go with you to death. And we must be careful we do not scoff at Peter. I mean, who, who has not been here? Where in a moment you are so, you know what is right, you know what you want, you want to be faithful to the Lord, you can see what is right, and you mean it. You know that you love the Lord. You know what He has done for you. And your desire is to obey Him. And you, you, you really, really want that. And you declare that. And you are sure of it and confident of it. You want that desperately. Only to, in the next moment, miserably fail. And do the exact thing you did not want to do. We must hear in these words a caution about our own self-confidence. Even after Peter was singled out here and warned, the other disciples went on to affirm the exact same truth. Uh, Luke doesn't draw our attention to that, but Matthew does in Matthew 26 and verse 35. They go on right afterwards. They affirm also they'll go with him to death, even after Peter's been warned and called out. And again, John Calvin notes on this, he says it's a cause for wonder that the other disciples, after Peter had been reproved, still break out into the same rashness. And hence, it is evident how little they knew themselves. We are taught by this example. The reality is, if we were self-aware, we would know that we as human beings are weak. We would know that our flesh is weak. And that what we need primarily is not just a puffed up confidence but help from our Lord when the moment of temptation comes aware that we too like Peter are weak and can be, are susceptible to temptation so let us be those who are self aware who know ourselves and don't stand in fleshly confidence again you think of Paul's warning elsewhere to to those who think they stand firm, to be careful lest you fall. 
This is precisely what happened here. He's sincere, but he's mistaken. Underestimates his flesh. And this weak flesh is another reason why Christ's intercession is necessary. His ongoing intercession. One final thing here in these verses that show the necessity of Christ's intercession is the reality of ongoing sin and failure. Look at verse 34. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus knew with exact insight, perfect precision, what was going to happen. He knew what Peter's sin would be. He knew how many times it would take place. And he knew at what time it would take place. And that the last one would be right before the rooster crowed. Jesus knew this sin was going to occur. And this particular sin that Peter commits is an absolutely devastating sin to one's faith. I mean, it gets, to, it gets right at the heart of the matter. Denying that you know Christ. I mean, does it get much worse than that? You claim to be a believer... Someone asks, and you are adamant that you do not. And you even invoke curses upon yourself if it were true. I mean, this gets right to the heart of the matter. And when that final rooster, when that rooster crowed, Jesus actually looks at Peter. They make eye contact. And then we find out later in Luke, later in this chapter, verse 62, he went out and wept bitterly at this. Bitterly. Just imagine how horrible that would feel. The fact is, sin is something that Christians continue to wrestle with and continue to commit. Indwelling sin is a reality in the Christian life. It's not an excuse for our sin. It's not something we celebrate or rejoice in. Uh, We do not sin so that grace may abound. We're not just okay with it. We do not make peace with it. But it is true. We do need to understand that even as we're being sanctified, so long as we are in these bodies on this side of the final resurrection, there will be sin present. And the reality is, too, that this is not just true of you. It's not just true for terrible Christians. It happened to Peter. Consider probably your favorite Bible character. Abraham, we see it in the life of Jacob, we see it miserably so in David, we see it in a great king like Hezekiah, we see it in all of the apostles who all likewise scattered the night that Jesus was betrayed. Moreover, this was not Peter's last public sin, and it was not his last public sin that has been enshrined in scripture for us. Later on, Paul tells us, after the resurrection of Christ, after Peter has been an apostle and has preached amazing sermons and seen many converts under his ministry, we're told about a time when Peter withdrew from the Gentiles, quit eating from them, and he was imposing a legalism upon them. It was not consistent with the gospel he preached, 
And Paul tells us in Galatians 2 that he had to call him out publicly because he was clearly in the wrong. There was a public calling out at that time, and then it's been held up for us in Scripture ever since. Paul himself was acquainted with his own weakness and sin, and he outlines this for us in Romans chapter 7, in which he talks about the fact that he failed to do the things that he wanted to do. And the things he did not want to do, he did. He found himself committing those sins. This was not something that was a happy experience for him. He did not rejoice in this reality. He loathed it and referred to himself as a wretched man at the end of Romans 7. And he looked to Christ for his deliverance. In Philippians 3.12, Paul also declared... Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He has not yet been sanctified. He has not reached the top peak where he is now perfect. He is still falls short, but he's pressing on towards that goal because he belongs to Christ, because Christ has made him his own. This ongoing sin is why we need Christ's ongoing intercession. We are weak. We are still sinful. As long as the sin-dwelling sin remains, we are in need of Christ's help. Between our enemy, between this godless world we live in, between our flesh, our ongoing sin, we would be lost if it weren't for Christ's help. And just before we leave this verse, this point... Uh, let's notice, notice something important. Jesus knew Peter was going to yet sin. He knew this was going to happen. But this does not mean that Peter was no longer a disciple, no longer able to be his. This does not mean that Jesus stopped loving him in this moment. Though this sin is grievous on Peter's part, this does not surprise Jesus nor does it make him stop loving Peter. Many people think that their sin years after they've become a Christian causes them to lose hope, causes them to think God can't still love me. Obviously, there's a you know, major problem with me and it's unlike other people. For some reason, we think that our the sins that Christ forgave when we first came to him and repented. Oh, he gladly forgave those, but all the ones since then, we sometimes think, well, probably not those ones, or maybe not those ones, because, you know, I knew better in this case. But look at what's happening here. He knows, he knows what Peter's going to do, and he's still going to the cross for Peter. Our ongoing sin does not mean we're without hope, but it does point to our need for an ongoing mediator to intercede for us. So this is the necessity of Christ's intercession, but now let's look at the effectiveness of his intercession. There are really two effects of his intercession here that are both found in verse 32. Um, the first is that his intercession preserves faith. It preserves faith. Now, it might seem like that's not the case here, since we know that Peter sinned. Right? He did, in fact, give in to this temptation. 
So we might wonder, Jesus prayed for him, but then he ends up giving in. So how does this work? Well, look more closely at what it is that Jesus prays. He says, Satan has demanded to have you all, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The Lord is addressing Peter. He begins by speaking to Simon. But then he, he broadens it out, says Satan has demanded to have all of you, to sift you all like wheat. But then he brings it back in here in the singular to point to Peter and says, but I have prayed for you, Peter. Now it could be that uh, Peter was the particular focus of, of Satan's designs, of his desires to sift. Perhaps he was in particular danger. Certainly his failure in the coming hours was the most spectacular and most notorious of the the 11. So it seems Peter is most at risk for whatever reason. Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What does this mean, that your faith may not fail? Well, option one is that Jesus prayed that Peter would not have a moment of weakness and give in to the temptation to deny him. Uh, if, this is what Peter mean, if this is what Jesus means when he says, I prayed for you, then it means his, his prayer was unanswered, or his prayer was answered with a no uh, from the Father. And I would suggest um, that's not true. I think we run into a lot of theological problems if we go there. I think it's unthinkable, in fact, to think that the son's prayers to the father would go unanswered or that the father would say no. We're talking about the son who is perfectly pleasing to his father, who only does what the father tells him to do and nothing else. Rather, what Jesus is praying for here is that Peter's faith would not ultimately fail. Not just that he, not simply that he wouldn't give in in this moment, but that his faith would not fail. That his faith would not be completely destroyed. That as Satan sifts him out, that he would not be completely ruined as Judas was. And this fits better with what actually happens. Again, Jesus knows Peter is going to, to fall. He knows he's going to fall to temptation hard. He says as much in these very verses. But he has prayed that Peter's faith would not finally be destroyed. Though Peter denies Jesus this night, his faith will not be destroyed. Why? Because Jesus has prayed for him. He has prayed for this very thing. And his prayers are answered. In the second half of verse 32, which we'll get into in a, in a moment, Peter's repentance is also anticipated. It's also foreknown by Christ. Not only does he know he'll fall, but he knows he's also going to repent. Notice he says, and when you have turned again. The word for turned is often used in the New Testament for repentance. So Jesus is saying that Peter will be shaken by Satan. This will involve Peter's abysmal failure into sin, denying of Christ. He said as much, but because Jesus has interceded for Peter, his faith will not be completely destroyed. He will turn again. He will repent. Jesus' intercession preserves Peter's faith. And this is not just true for Peter. It is not just for Peter that Jesus prays. 
Again, Hebrews 7.25, I read earlier, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's for everyone who draws near to God through Christ Jesus. For all of his sheep, this is who Jesus intercedes for. Having made the sacrifice that was necessary and sufficient to save, Jesus, now in his exalted state, at the Father's right hand, has ascended there and is in the heavenly sanctuary, as Hebrews describes for us in chapter 6 and 7, where he presently intercedes for all of his people, all who have repented of their sin and who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, trusting in his righteousness alone, who forsaken their own attempts to earn righteousness and who are trusting fully and completely in the righteousness of Christ alone, being credited to our account purely by God's grace as a gift to us through faith. For all who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus is your high priest, if that's you. He intercedes for you. He not only forgives in the past, but he actively now keeps and preserves through his intercession. He is able to save to the uttermost, Hebrews says, since he always lives to make intercession for them. As our high priest, he not only offered himself as the sacrifice, which he did, but he also intercedes for us. He represents us. He prays for us. He is for us. And his intercession, moreover, is sure. It is effective to preserve faith. Theologian Herman Babing says, In Christ's intercession, perpetual witness to God arises, not for vengeance, but for grace and forgiveness. Christ's intercession is the steadfast, gracious will of Christ to lead all his people to the blessedness of heaven on the basis of his sacrifice. If you're trusting in Jesus and you find yourself in that place where you've pulled a Peter and you've failed again in some miserable fashion, if you're starting to wonder if the Lord will keep you, or you're starting to wonder if perhaps he's abandoned you, be reminded here of his intercession for all who trust in him. Including you. See in Peter's situation an encouragement. Did Christ know he'd fail? Yes. Did Christ abandon him? No. Did Christ still go to the cross to pay for Peter's sins? Yes. Did Christ intercede for him so that his faith would not be totally destroyed, though he failed miserably? Yes. Does Christ do this for all who believe in him? Hebrews 7 is clear. Yes. Yes. This is the ongoing work of our great high priest. Peter may have wondered how it was he could fail so horrifically. And yet how comforting would these words have been to remember these things. To remember what the Lord said to him. To remember that Jesus prayed that his faith would not fail. To remember that Jesus himself anticipated that he would turn again, that he would repent. 
if he was wondering if all hope was lost, to remember these words of Christ. Friends, if you're discouraged by your sin, but you also know, as Peter did, that he had nowhere else to turn. If you think of John chapter 6, when all are deserting Christ, and he turns to the disciples and says, you want to go to, and Peter says, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Perhaps you, you know your sinfulness, you feel it heavy, but you also know, I have nowhere else to turn. You rest there with Peter. To, to where else am I going to go? I am a wretch, I am miserable, I have failed again, but I have no other hope than Christ. And if that's true, see your high priest interceding on your behalf to keep you. His people still fall, but they will not fail, and we must cling to this. His intercession is effective in that it preserves faith. But it not only keeps a person from ultimately failing, uh, there's a second effect here. It also restores to service. The fact that Jesus intercedes for us also means that we're not to wallow forever in our guilt over our sins. His intercession is in fact restorative. Jesus says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Again, to, to turn again is referring to repentance. And this word strengthen is used throughout the New Testament uh, to refer to being strengthened in the faith or built up, established in the faith. Your brothers likely refers not only to his fellow apostles, but also to Christians in general. And of course, as we keep reading in part two of Luke, which is the book of Acts, we see Peter take this prominent leading role. Even amongst the twelve, he stands out as a leader amongst the twelve. We see him preach tremendous sermons, providing leadership to the church. The first 12 chapters of Acts tells this story. Peter was restored. And this restoration formally uh, takes place at the end of the, the Gospel of John. We see this. If you remember that story, Jesus meets with his disciples. The resurrected Christ appears before his ascension to his disciples in Galilee. And there he asks Peter three times if Peter loves him. Uh, one for each of Peter's denials. And Peter knew precisely what was going on. And we're told in John 21 that Peter was grieved when he asked him the third time, Peter, do you love me? He knew. He was reminded. He knew what this was about. So a reminder of his failure to acknowledge his love for Christ. Three times that night he was betrayed. And Peter affirmed his love for Christ each, each time. And it was followed by Christ telling him, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. It's the same, same idea. Strengthen your brothers. Peter's failure was not it for him. It was not the end for him. He was restored to feed Christ's sheep. He was forgiven. And he was reconciled to God. He was right with God. And he was restored to serve him. Now I do just want to say a side note. That sins do have consequences. We know this. And there are certain sins that, for example, would demand that a pastor resign his post and step down. There are times when that must happen. When a, a man becomes disqualified for preaching, for being a pastor, 
That happens. There are consequences of sin. Uh, times in which it would wrong, be wrong to simply just restore him to his previous position. There are consequences like that sometimes. But even when that occurs, for the person who truly repents, there will be service of some sort to return to in Christ's church. Though it might be a very different role, not one of leadership, not one of preaching, there is still service to be done to Christ's sheep, still service to be done in the church. That man still needs to lead his home and serve the Lord in that way. But these, these moments of disqualifying where, where, where the consequences are, are real and they must change things and precisely what the service to the Lord will be, uh, that's not, those situations are not what's in view here. The, the fact is, evidently, as grievous as Peter's sin was here, Peter had not committed something that would prevent him from serving as a leading apostle in Christ's church. Really, just think of how amazing the, that, that grace is. How easily this would, could have been held over Peter's head. Oh, you're that guy. That guy. You're going to tell me what to do? You're going to tell me what's right and wrong? You want to preach? It's amazing grace. And so how much more then should we be strengthened when we fail to see that Christ doesn't just grudgingly forgive and then just leave you? I'll let it go, but you... Just feel rotten about that for a while longer. Forever. No, Peter is restored here. So too, all Christians are not grudgingly forgiven and left to wallow in it forever. Rather, we are made beloved children of God. And so when we fall, and fall we do, Jesus intercedes for us, which allows us to get back up when we've repented. What right have we to do so? Because Jesus is our mediator. So notice the progression. It begins with repentance. When you have turned again, then strengthen your brothers. Then return to your station, Peter. Get back in the fight. Keep going. That's what the Lord's telling him. And so when you discover sin in your life, repent of it. Turn again. And then return to your service for the Lord. Return to using your gifts to build up the body of Christ. Return to your responsibilities. Whatever your calling, your vocation is for the Lord, you do this to the best of your abilities. You lead your family. You, whatever it might be that you are called to do, you get back to it. You return to your station. You man your post again. No, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that we pretend sin is no big deal. That's not what I'm saying. That we just, look, it's no big deal. Just get back to, you know, just sweat, you know, push it to the side and just get, get on with things. No, we should know. We ought to know and feel the severity and the weight of our sin. The fact is, Peter's sin was horrendous. It really was a grievous sin. But rather than concluding that, well, I've sinned again, therefore I must be out of God's reach, I must be out of His grace, He can't save me, rather than feeling that way, we need to get past that, feel the weight of our sin as it is awful, but then look past that to rediscover the greatness of God's grace, the greatness of His mercy to us in Christ. 
if, if, if I've done this again and my sin is horrific and I'm years into this life being a Christian and I've blown it again in a way that I should know better and I feel so low because this is so terrible, this ought, the next place we have to get to eventually is when we confess that to God to realize that is actually forgiven, that Christ knew this would happen and that this is the greatness of God's mercy and grace. And so it's not pretending the sin is no big deal and we just get on with it. It's letting the weight of it sink in, but then realizing God's grace is great enough to cover even that horrendous sin. That's where we eventually need to end up. And so the, 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 there's cause then for joy in this, to realize that even as we continue to wrestle with sin, as we go and we get to the end of our days, we're still going to be saying, God is a merciful God. And we'll know it all the more than the day we first began, when we were filled with all kinds of zeal and we felt like we were on top of the world and we didn't really see our sin for what it really was. When we get to the end of the days, we will know the depths of our depravity even more and we will also know the grace of our God all the more. Charles Spurgeon said, Believers repent until their dying day. The reason for this is that as long as we are in these bodies, on this side of the resurrection of the dead, we still sin. And this can be most discouraging. In addition to our own flesh, we have our powerful enemy who has come to steal, to kill, and destroy, intent on our utter discouragement, lack of productivity in the faith, in the faith Desiring our destruction. But the encouragement is that, as Job knew and acknowledged, our Redeemer lives. He lives, and as He does, He makes intercession for all who are believing in Him. His prayer sustained Peter. Though he succumbed to temptation in that moment, in a most miserable way, his faith did not ultimately give out. Christ did hold him fast. And so let us take fresh courage, fresh strength, a fresh glimpse of the grace of God, and be strengthened knowing that the same Lord, the same Jesus who prayed for Peter, likewise intercedes for all of his children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again just stop and we bow before you. Father, you are holy. You are unstained. You are light. There is no darkness in you at all. And we know that we are much, much like Peter. We have failed miserably in many ways. Some have been public some have been known by others, and many have been secret. Many have been unknown by others, but you know all things. Nothing escapes your gaze. And Father, this can be such a discouraging thing, and you know this, and so you've given us your word, and you've given us promises and hope. Father, we are so thankful you've sent your son, Jesus, to die for our sins, to sacrifice himself where we deserve to be slaughtered 
and that he has earned a righteousness that is ours by faith. And this is our only hope and chance. And Father, we are also grateful and we praise you that part of your plan of sending Christ was that he would rise, he would ascend, and that he would presently intercede and he would keep his own. This would be the way in which we would be preserved to the end. And Father, as we continue to battle our sin and we wrestle with our, our failings, I pray that we would be able to see the truths we've seen today. That we would be able by faith to appropriate these truths. To know that Christ is a great Savior with tremendous amount of mercy and that we would be able to place all of our hope in Him and all of our hope in the fact that You will preserve us not because we are great people, not because we deserve anything, but to magnify, magnify Your own grace, Your own glory, to magnify the, the goodness of Your Son, the greatness of Christ. And I pray that all of this would cause us to to really despise sin and forsake it in our lives. That this would motivate us even more to, to get in the battle and fight off our sin, knowing that Christ Jesus has made us his own. So Father, I pray that you'd encourage us and strengthen us, all of your people here today. Father, strengthen us for the week ahead. We just give you praise for your goodness to us, your faithfulness to us. We pray all of this together in the name of Jesus. Amen.